So this morning, we're going to start a new series that I'm calling Blow It Up, Exploding Satan's Greatest Lies. And we are going to be looking at lies and half-truths that the enemy has been peddling literally since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden. Um, And these are lies that are designed to destroy and diminish us, destroy and diminish people who are intended to enjoy fellowship with each other and unbroken fellowship with our creator God. We are uh, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the ones who scripture affirms we are made in the image of God. That's us. Now Satan, he can't take down God. He knows he has no chance against the Lord. But what he can do and does do is try to tarnish and destroy people made in the image of God, us. Scripture tells us that we have this enemy as old as time. He is determined to wreck and ruin us. And as much as some might want to label Satan, the devil, the evil one, as superstition or as an antiquated relic from the ancient world, I believe it is very dangerous to dismiss the reality of Satan's presence in the world. First, because of the flood of evidence that we see on on almost a daily basis in our world that evil is real, all right? Um, Evil is real, and, and mass shootings, Southern Springs, Las Vegas, mass shootings, terrorism, child abuse, uh, human trafficking, um, all of these, all of, the, all of the new sexual assault stuff that is coming to light. I believe that we have just an onslaught of evidence that there is an evil architect determined to take us down. And while, the, while our culture likes to try to explain all of this away by talking about, you know, mental illness and uh, need to go to rehab and therapy and all, all these sorts of things. In our souls, we know that evil is real, right? A lot of these folks, is, uh, they may need rehab, but they need Jesus. They need to repent of sin and come to the Lord. We know that evil is real. And the Bible tells us uh, this compelling story, if we'll listen to it, that the evil one is at work in this world. And as Jesus said in John 10.10, his mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Second, I believe it's hard to dismiss the presence of the evil one in this world because Jesus Christ, without a doubt, the most influential human being to ever live, Jesus took Satan seriously, very seriously. And if the devil is a myth, if the devil is a relic from the ancient world, then Jesus' daily struggle against Satan and his minions is mere shadow boxing. Because if you delete the enemy from the Gospels, then Jesus is merely a fool punching the air. His ministry is bookended by the devil, right? Um, His beginning of his ministry, the launch in the desert, this duel in the desert with Satan, the temptations that are recorded for us, the end of his ministry, Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it's bookended by Satan entering into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So we can neither understand the story of Scripture without accepting the reality of the enemy, nor do I believe can we fully understand what's going on in our world today 
without understanding what the one Jesus called the prince of this world, what he is up to in our lives and in our world. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus said, The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his what? His native language, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Now you can write that down on your nickname, uh, on your outline, this nickname that Jesus gave to the devil. Jesus calls him the father of lies. I was reading this week that even today, 2017, there are still bombs from World War II that are being discovered scattered across Europe. You say 10, uh, 10% of the bombs that we dropped during World War II did not explode. And so they're scattered about, they're buried, they're half buried, they're hidden. And folks are still having to locate them and detonate them. And I believe in a way over the next few weeks in this series, that's kind of what we are going to be doing we are going to be uncovering lies that the father of lies is still trying to sell us, uncover these weapons of mass destruction, buried and hidden, and we are going to blow them up with the truth from God's word. And as we do this, we will become healthier, happier, most importantly, holier people. So this is important, what we're, what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. Now, I want you to, we're going to start at the beginning, and I want you to listen to the very first words in the Bible that are recorded as Satan having said. Listen to his first words. This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He is tempting Eve. Here goes. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. So his first words are an attempt to get her to question and doubt the word. Are you sure God really said that? Now, you may be thinking, wait a second, did God say that? Did God say you can't eat from any tree? Exactly. He's misquoting God, right? And then not only does he confuse and get her to question God's word and misquote God's word, then he contradicts God's word. We pick it up a couple of verses later. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The enemy replied, hey Eve, you will not surely die. You know, God told them they'll die if they eat from that tree. He said, you will not surely die because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, you've heard that story. Adam and Eve, they both made the choice to doubt God's word and to doubt God, to doubt that he was really looking after them, that his word was really designed to protect and help them to flourish. And they had been warned about this. And when, when they denied his word, when they chose to doubt it and to go against it from that day forward... A slow, inevitable process of decay and death began for them and began for all of us. So, let's start with the first lie that the father of lies ever told. We read it just a moment ago about doubting God's word. His lie is, I cannot trust God's word. 
I cannot trust God's word. That is the oldest lie in the devil's playbook. Now, I believe that one way, that there are a lot of ways God's love is revealed for us. One of those ways is in the Bible. That God, this infinite creator God, all-powerful, all-knowing, that he chose to condescend himself. He chose to humble himself to speak to us. To reveal things to us. The Bible shows us his love because he wants to communicate with us. Big things like, who are we supposed to be? What is our potential? Um, How did we mess that up with sin? And how can we come back together through Jesus Christ into this relationship with God? And if he, if Satan could get Adam and Eve to doubt the word of God, he knew he could ruin them. And nothing has changed. He knows if he can get you to doubt the word of God, he can wreck your life. Now, I'm not real interested in chasing a bunch of rabbits uh, that skeptics and atheists throw around to try to discredit the Bible. Um, You can email me your questions or we can talk offline with that. Um, We could chase those rabbits, but I would rather take a, a bigger approach, a broader, more affirmative approach to the Bible. Truth is, I've read article after article Uh, blog after blog, uh, book after book on these inaccuracies in the Bible. And I got to tell you, frankly, what I've seen is very, very weak. But I will take on one. This is one of the favorites to discredit the Bible these days. Very popular, right? Um, You have probably heard this. It goes like, it's very simple. That's why it's so powerful. It is this. Did you know the Bible endorses slavery okay that one's used all that the bible endorses slavery mic drop you can't trust it okay um i like this one because it represents really the stupidity of a lot of arguments against god's word for starters the argument blurs perhaps intentionally blurs the huge differences between what we think of as slavery in our history, in American history, and slavery in the ancient world, particularly slavery in ancient Israel. Here in our history, we think of slavery race-based. Subjugation of one race. It's not the way it was in the ancient world. Certainly not the way it was in the Bible. It wasn't directed at people of a certain skin color or anything like that. And by the way, the Bible actually guaranteed rights and protections for slaves. Generally in the Old Testament, when it talks about slavery, it is limiting it. Right? In our history, slavery existed for the economic benefit of who? Of the master. Right? In the Bible, we see in places like Leviticus chapter 22 that a primary motive for slavery was the economic benefit of the servant. Very different. Very different. In the U.S., slavery was involuntary. I mean, right? No duh. I mean, come on. People were captured. People were sold into slavery. In the Bible, nine times out of ten, slavery was voluntary. It was something that someone chose for themselves. In our nation's history, it was usually permanent. Once a slave, always a slave. In fact, your kids, your grandkids, they're going to be slaves too. 
Hebrew slaves in the Bible, they could always buy their freedom, but at worst, the Bible guaranteed that you could serve at most six years before Exodus 21-2, before you were offered the opportunity to just walk away free, right? And finally, there's this little detail. In the Western world, it was courageous Christ followers like John Newton and William Wilberforce who brought the evil institution of slavery crashing down. In fact, I was reading the other day, some historians believe that the publishing of the King James Bible in 1611 was one of the major factors bringing an end to slavery in the Western world. So again, the idea that, well, the Bible endorses slavery, one of the favorite arguments to try to discredit it these days. And it is as old as time for the enemy to try anything and everything to get us to doubt the Bible. So what we want to do is look at some truths that we know about God's Word that will help us to trust His Word 100%. With that in mind, I want to share with you the seven wonders of the world. I've seen this in different places. This is my version. Um, The seven wonders of the world, evidence that the Bible is, in fact, inspired by God. It is a truly one-of-a-kind book. The first would be the wonder of its formation, the wonder of its formation. The way in which the Bible grew is, to this day, one of history's greatest mysteries, I mean, think about it. Century after century, little by little, piece by piece, the Bible was was being put together, was being assembled in very different geographic places. Africa, Asia, Europe. Normally, a book uh, comes out when an author decides, hey, I'm going to publish a book. Uh, I I plan it out. I collect material. I write it down. I edit it. Generally, it happens over a year, two years, three years. And and books are are almost always going to be published within within a, a generation, within a lifetime of an author. But the Bible grows in this different way. A little here, a little there. Some history, some poetry, some prophecies, some biographies, some letters, um, some speeches, laws, Proverbs. And over time, there is this amazing book that came together that spoke powerfully and still speaks powerfully into the lives of folks all across this fallen world. Now, its formation, its existence, is just really hard to explain without recognizing that the hand of God was involved in this. The second wonder of the world is the wonder of its unity. I just want to think about this for a second because the Bible is a collection, you know this, you learned this in Bible school probably, a collection of 66 books written over 15 years by give or take 40 authors, yet it tells this cohesive story about God's redemptive work. That's because it was written under the Spirit of God's guidance. And so you've got these authors from all walks of life You've got shepherds, farmers, tent makers, kings, physicians, fishermen, priests, um, philosophers. Uh, And over this massive span of centuries, these authors, these diverse people writing from diverse parts of the world, um, they are telling one clear, coherent story, and it is just stunning when you think about it. In fact... um, Let me put it this way. The fact that that normally when people think about the Bible, they think about a book. Oh, yeah, the Bible, that book. 
very influential book, the fact that people think of it as a book is really a testament, remarkable testament to its unity because it is a collection of 66 books. Hence that word Bible, which comes from the Greek biblion. Biblion means library. It is a library of books, but the, the fact that we think of it as one book is a testament to its remarkable unity. All right. Number three, the wonder of its age. The wonder of its age. The Bible is the most ancient book of all. Literally, it is the first book. The first one that was published that was bound. Gutenberg Bible back in 1455. Obviously, you had scrolls, you had manuscripts that were floating around and everything, but it was the first book to be published. Number four, think about this one, the wonder of its sale. It is the bestseller of all time. Six billion, give or take. Six billion copies of the Bible have been printed and sold. Now, just to give this some, some perspective, also on the top ten list of of most sold books ever. You have the first Harry Potter book on there, and it sold like 107 million copies. So think about the difference. The, the behemoth that is the Word of God in terms of its distribution and sales. Number five, and I find this one striking, it is the wonder of its audience. Or maybe a better word there would be its reach. The wonder of its audience. It is the only book in the world regularly read by all kinds of people. Back in 2016, I got a phone call uh, one day. and It was our city councilman here, Adam McGue, said, Hey, I've got a ticket for you to go to the memorial service. Remember when the Dallas police officers were killed and there was a big memorial service down at the Meyerson? He said, I got a ticket, but you got to get in your car and come right now. And I wasn't really dressed for it, but okay. I was like, I got to get down there. I mean, George Bush was going to be there. Obama was going to be there. And I was like, I want to, I just want to see what they're going to say to honor these soldiers. And you know what? When President Obama gave his talk, he quoted four different Bible passages at length. After the Las Vegas shooting, I remember hearing President Trump quote from Psalm 34 at length. Presidents throughout our nation's history, this isn't just the early part of our our nation's history, but throughout our history have routinely recognized the authority and the the relevance of the Bible to all sorts of situations that we face as a people. It's so common that when a president of the United States quotes the Bible, no one even raises an eyebrow. The Bible is routinely woven into these presidential speeches and addresses, and it's not just here in America. Believe it or not, Vladimir Putin has quoted the Bible in his speech. He, he keeps a copy of the Bible on his presidential plane. Now, this would be a good place to be, to be clear. We're not saying that they all quote the Bible correctly, right? Or that everyone who quotes the Bible is a godly person. It's just that this book undeniably has had a singular influence in the world, especially in the Western world. The Bible's reach is singular. It is unique. There is nothing even close to it. It is a source of inspiration. It is a source of guidance for presidents and plumbers, for moms and musicians, doctors and ditch diggers, billionaires and beggars. Uh, The Bible speaks to people of all races, all cultures, all socioeconomic levels, all educational levels. It is more than a book. It is God's word. No other book, no other book has anywhere close to this kind of universal reach. Number six, 
the wonder of its language. It was written primarily by uneducated people, yet it is considered a literary masterpiece. Okay? Well, who considers it? Well, everyone in literature pretty much considers it a literary masterpiece. How about Charles Dickens? Charles Dickens wrote, The New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. How about J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings series? He esteemed the Bible highly enough that he was one of the translators of the Old Testament for the Jerusalem Bible. Finally, number seven. The wonder of its preservation. Think about this. The wonder of its preser tre preservation. It is the most suppressed book of all time, and yet its circulation continues to grow and grow and grow. Over the centuries, it has been burned more, banned more, and bullied more than any other book, but without question, it is the most impactful book in our history. There are even today countries where it is a criminal act to distribute Bibles. I've traveled to places like China where you can get arrested for bringing Bibles into the country. You want some beautiful irony? You want to see God at work? Think about China for a second. I read in the, in the London Daily Telegraph this week this article that said China will become, in the next 15 years, quote, the, the world's most Christian nation. Wow. Wow. The devil started out in the beginning saying, you can't trust God's word. And to this day, he's still repeating the same thing. You, you can't trust the Bible. Now let me add this. In an ancient book, which is in actuality a collection of 66 books, which has a gigantic word count of close to 800,000, you would expect to have some passages that are challenging, that are going to be difficult to understand, and you've got that in the Bible. Full honesty here, you've got that in the Bible. Especially considering the Bible is addressing life's biggest questions. Who are we? Who is God? What is the nature of, of life after death? When it addresses things that are that profound... Issues that are that heavy, yeah, you would expect there to be some challenging and some difficult texts, and you've got that in the Bible. You do. The Bible, though, deserves the benefit of the doubt. And I would invite you, if you have not already recognized the Bible as your authority, as the foundation for decisions you make, for directions that you choose, I would urge you to, to echo the proclamation of an ancient politician, if you will, King David, who wrote in Psalm 119, verse 105, he said this, he said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Would you echo that with me? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. 
I can trust it. I can let it illuminate my next steps. Thank you for your word, God. And I would encourage you to embrace what Paul shared with his protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote this. Listen closely. He says, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to do what? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I don't know if you noticed, but you have there in those words, you have one of the reasons that the devil is so intent on separating you from the Word of God, causing you to question the Word of God. Paul shares it with Timothy. He says, because the Word of God is able to lead you to who? To Jesus Christ. The Word of God is powerful to take you to the only one who can save you to the only one who can bring you life after death, to the one who can give you purpose right here and right now. So don't believe the enemy's oldest lie that you just can't trust the Bible. Instead, build your life on the foundation of God's holy word. And this morning, maybe for you, it is a prayer need that you have that you just need to get together with somebody and pray about or pray with me or one of our elders about. Maybe for you, it is crossing the line of faith, being baptized into Jesus Christ. Uh, Gina Gonzalez was baptized here, let me see, uh, Thursday night. Okay, I remember that at 7 o'clock. And others have made this decision. Maybe it's your, your time to cross that line and say yes to Jesus. However you need to respond to the word this morning, do that as together we stand and worship.